Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're going to look at a series I've been teaching at my current pastorate entitled, How Great is Our God? Assessing the Attributes of the Almighty. This is not an expository series through a book, which is our standard and always will be our standard. Uh, this is a sun, something I do on Sunday nights as a teaching to really deal with the theology of God, um, who is God, how is God, why is God, the doctrine uh, of God. And so, hence the title, How Great is Our God, Assessing the Attributes of the Almighty. You know, one of the great tragedies of the modern evangelical church is that in an attempt to reach people, we have oversimplified and watered down our view of God to the point that we have attempted to bring God down to our level. I remember speaking at a youth conference at a church in Spartanburg years ago, and they allowed a woman to get up and speak, which in and of itself is biblically problematic. But she addressed the children and said, When you pray, just say, What's up, God? And then I'll talk to you later. She said this as if God is just some bum on the street. Certainly we can access God through prayer and come to the throne with confidence, but that doesn't mean that we address him as any other human being. For example, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on the Yom Kippur, he had to do so perfectly according to the Mosaic and Levitical law. If he did not, God would strike him dead instantly. We have lost the reverence and the holy fear that is due the Almighty. For this cause, all sorts of heresies have entered the church. God has become a cosmic Santa Claus, as it were. We go to him and tell him what we want, what we really want, and at the end of the day, he just wants us to be happy. However, this is not the God of Scripture. This is not the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. The true God of Scripture is infinite, holy, righteous, all-powerful, and is due all the respect in the world and more. Did not Jesus himself tell us to hallow the name of God when we pray? Now in light of that, we must rediscover the nature of God, that is, his attributes. For this cause, we will begin our study, How Great is Our God, Assessing the Attributes of the Almighty. God's attributes can be broken down into two general divisions non-moral, and moral attributes. And throughout this study, we will examine both classes. They will be delineated, defined, and then defended with Scripture. Now, let's pray together. O God, all-sufficient, Thou hast made and upholdest all things by the word of Thy power. Darkness is Thy pavilion. Thou walkest on the wings of the wind. All nations are nothing before Thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But thou, unchangeable and incorruptible, are forever and ever. God over all, blessed eternally. Infinitely great and glorious art thou. We are thy offspring and thy care. Thy hands have made and fashioned us. Thou hast watched over us with more than paternal love, more than maternal tenderness. Thou hast holden our soul in life and not suffered our feet to be moved. 
thy divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let us bless thee at all times and forget not how thou hast forgiven our iniquities, healed our diseases, redeemed our lives from destruction, crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfied our mouths with good things, renewed our youth like the eagles. May thy holy scriptures govern every part of our lives and regulate the discharge of all our duties so that we may adorn thy doctrine in all things. Amen. Thus we begin with his non-moral attributes, okay? And the one we're going to start with is his aseity, from the Latin assay, which means from itself. The main idea of aseity is that God depends on nothing other than himself for his existence. That is, God needs nothing to exist or to fulfill himself in any Way. Now, this is not one of his moral attributes that has to do with how he acts with us. One of his non-moral attributes. In other words, it's just part of what he is, period, who he is. The aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Now, you hear this word and you think, what is this guy talking about? And why do I care? Well, you should care because one of the lies of the modern church is the idea that God needs us, that God wanted us so bad that he came to earth. Is that really God's motivating factor? No. He came to save us in order to exalt himself. But now I'm getting the cart ahead of the horse. So let's begin with the definition of aseity. Again, from the Latin assay, which literally means from itself. The main idea of aseity is that God depends on nothing other than himself for his existence. That is, God needs nothing to exist or fulfill himself in any way. Now, this definition needs to be extrapolated in order for you to understand and grasp what I'm speaking of. One way of putting it is simply this. God is independent, whereas creation is dependent. We depend on many things. God is independent from anything. He needs nothing. So we have several headings that I want to break this idea down in considering God's aseity. And it's, it is a glorious truth. And I want to agree with the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, who influenced my theology greatly, that God's aseity is really where we must start with our doctrine of God because it is completely that which makes him unlike any other being of all time, of all places in the universe. It is a satiety of which everything flows that makes him God. It's just a glorious truth. Well, four headings, okay, to kind of break it down into four pieces, if you will. Number one, Self-existence. God, in his aseity, has self-existence. Now, it's important to realize that God exists from himself. He was not created, nor did he create himself. He has simply always been. Note the opening of the entire Bible, Genesis 1-1-A. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was already there. This means he is before the beginning. He is self-existent. 
Note again John 5, 26. Jesus makes a very important statement. He states, For as the Father hath life in himself. In himself. Now you and I have life in what? Food, water, shelter. However, God has life in himself. He has aseity. He is self-existent. Now this is unlike any other creature in the entire universe. Our life comes from our mothers and fathers, if you want to go all the way back, who procreate, and then here we come. However, God is self-existent. Now, let's consider a final scripture under this heading. Exodus 3.14 And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. He is what he is. Not I have been or I will be, but I am. That's amazing to me. You say that's improper grammar. No, it's actually not. For example, um, Jesus, when confronting and dealing with the Pharisees, and they were talking about, oh, we're children of Abraham, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus said, hey, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we know Jesus was doing two things. Number one, he was smacking them in the mouth with the theological truth that he is God incarnate, very God of very God, that the Father is as much God as the Son is God and vice versa. And so that's beautiful. But also, he is stating the fact of the aseity of the Godhead. That you cannot go to a time in which God was not. Now, we'll talk about this more later, but I want to, before I move on, I catechize my children. And I think everybody should. If you don't run your children through uh, a good, strong, theologically sound children's catechism, that's fine, but make no mistake, the world will teach them uh, their way. If you don't disciple your children, the world will. And we wonder why kids don't even know what a woman is, because we don't teach our kids. We give that over to the state, which is completely satanic and unscriptural, but that's beside the point. In the children's catechism, I ask my daughters this question, four-year-old and six-year-old. I say, how long has God existed? And their response is, he has always been. I love that. God's aseity, self-existent. Not only is he self-existent, but in his aseity, you would also have to say he is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. He needs no outside help in any way to sustain himself. In other words, God has no needs. Now compare that to all other created beings. You and I, we, what do we need? We need food, water, sleep. What do animals need? Food, water, sleep, the same. Plants, what do they need? Sunshine, rain. Yet God needs nothing. Everything is within himself. He has no needs. And that's one of the things I hate about a lot of modern so-called Christian music. It makes it out like God's our boyfriend and he just couldn't live without us. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a man-centered theology that is, in, that is meant to take the microscope off of God and put it on us. And that's exactly what Satan desired before, before the fall 
when he fell is he desired to take the microscope off of God and put it on himself. And so at the heart, you could say this man-centered theology, which is alien to church history, alien to the apostolic era, alien to the Old Testament, you would have to say that it is satanic in nature. God don't need you. You need God. He is self-sufficient. When Paul was on Mars Hill, he began to encounter the pagans and begin to combat their paganism using their own philosophical methods against them. Paul was a genius, master apologist. And the pagans in their pantheon of gods, they had all these gods and goddesses. And they even, just to cover their bases, had an unmarked statue just in case they forgot one. This unknown God, as it were. And in Acts 17, Paul goes to them and says, and I'm summarizing, all these gods and goddesses are false, they don't exist, but this unknown God, the God that you don't know, he is the one true God. Of course, he's referring to Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. And Paul said these words that deal with the self-sufficiency of this God. Because think about this. They had these statues. And they would bring food and sacrifices to these statues as if the statues needed nourishment. And yet our God does not dwell in wooden carvings or stone made with hands. Our God is transcendent. And he is imminent. And he is eternal. And he is self-sufficient because he has aseity. Listen to what Paul said. Acts 17, 24-25a. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that the, he is Lord of heaven and earth, watch this, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. Our service and worship to God does not fulfill his needs because he doesn't need anything. Rather, they are rendered him because they are owed him. God don't need your worship, but you owe God your worship. You say, wasn't that the same thing? Not at all. Because one side puts you in control and the other side shows that God is in control. So no, it's not the same thing. And it fundamentally changes your view of God. And if you don't have a high view of God, then you have not met the God of Scripture. You've met the God of secular culture. The God of Wikipedia theologians, as I call them. You know, the people that want to argue about the Bible, they don't actually know what the Bible says. They just watch The Chosen, read a couple of Wikipedia articles, and now all of a sudden they... they they think they're Adrian Rogers or Al Mohler, and they're just these giant theologian types. How false. How sad. Anyways, God doesn't need you. You need God. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. Thirdly, he is self-exalting. God's number one priority is not the salvation of sinners. And people go, oh my goodness, whoa, whoa, what are, you, what are you saying? Calm down, take a breath, and let me explain. God's number one priority 
is his own glory. And he is glorified in the salvation of sinners. But the priority is not upon us. The priority is upon him. Because if he cast every one of us into hell, he would still be worthy of all honor, glory, and respect. Not by virtue of what he's done, but by virtue of who he is. You say, man, you have a high view of God. Most saved people do. And you cannot have a high view of God until you have a low view of humanity. You say, man, you don't think much about people. I don't think much about myself because I know in my flesh dwelleth no good things. Now, Paul said that. And if Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, could say, in my flesh dwelleth no good things, then I promise you in the flesh of Brad Starnes dwells no good things. He is self-exalting. He desires to exalt himself. Now, in order to prove that, I want to read to you just a few scriptures. We don't have time for me to sit here at this microphone and flip through all my notes on this subject, but I do want to read to you a few scriptures. The first one comes to us in Psalms 2511. Psalms 2511. And it says this, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Why? For his name's sake. Let's look at Psalms 23.3. Psalms 23.3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's look at Isaiah. Let's see what the prophet had to say. I mean, that's, that's logical, right? We put a lot of stock in the prophets, and we should. So let's see what Isaiah had to say. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. God speaking. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Here it goes again, verse 11. For my own sake, comma, for my own sake, comma, I will do it, for how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another. You say, man, God's all about himself. Bingo. God is self-exalting. And how dare you, who are you, O oh man, to look at God and to suggest that he isn't 100,000% worthy to be exalted? The earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare the power of his handiwork. How dare you suggest that God is not the ultimate priority, that God's glory is not altogether more important than anything you and I could do. And that's why we must spend our life seeking to bring him glory. Well, you say, Pastor, that's Old Testament, you know, and uh, I know how you pastors are. You'll, you'll just jump into that Old Testament. Well, I got news for you. We're going to read one more scripture before we move on, and that comes to us from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter number 2, verse 9. Philippians 2, verse 9. Here it is, Philippians 2, 9. It says this, 
Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalted Jesus and God is zealous for his own glory. And since Jesus is God, because Jesus said I and the Father are one, then by exalting Jesus, God the Father ultimately exalts himself. Chew on that for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's nothing else you understand, if there's nothing else you gather from this theological lesson, it is this, that God is deeper and wider and higher than you have ever imagined, and it is time that we as the church of the living God begin to give him the due diligence uh, to study him and to know him and to dig deeper and deeper in the scripture, begging to know more of him because when you love somebody, you like to know more about them. When you love somebody, you want to know what they want, what they are. And so before you think that, well, this is just all in the intellectual side of theology. No, this is as practical as putting on your shoes before you walk out of the house to know God and to make him known. Because if you don't truly understand, at least to the point that you magnify him as such, the God of Scripture, then it will affect your theology, and that will affect your witness, and that will affect your view of the gospel, and it may lead you to a false sense of security that you have no sense having. He is self-exalting. Lastly, being that God has a satiety, he is self-content. Oh, yeah. He self-sufficient, self-existing, self-exalting, and self-content. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, God gets satisfaction from God. Think about this. He is content. He needs nothing. He has no desires other than that which is found within himself in order to satisfy himself. I, I know this last one, I'll grant you, this last one is a little bit abstract. But let me read you a scripture. Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611. Psalms 16:11 You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy in his presence is the fullness of joy aka therefore to be colloquial to bring it down to everyone's level the reason his presence contains the fullness of joy is because he is the source of joy, and therefore any joy that he desires, he can get from himself. I realize that that's like, wow. <laughs> it should be. I was listening to another 
theologian that I have great respect for talk about these things. And he said, you know, what is your deepest thought about God? And I'd be scared to ask that in most evangelical churches because I don't, I don't think we've gotten past the kindergarten, and most of us haven't even passed the kindergarten. Ladies and gentlemen, biblical illiteracy, that is being illiterate when it comes to Scripture, is deadly. Because to not know the scripture is to not know the Savior. When I was in seminary the last time, I hope it's the last time, I, I don't want to go back. I wrote my doctoral project on this subject, biblical illiteracy. We have at least the last three generations, and I'm talking about the church in America. I'm not talking about Europe, Asia, Africa, not, not my circus, not, not my problem. I'm talking about the church in America. I'll even get more specific. The southeastern region of the United States, a.k.a. Allah, the Bible Belt. We These past three generations are the most theologically illiterate, biblically illiterate. I hear things come out of pulpits in so-called Baptist churches that is so foreign to Scripture, it, it is putrefying. Why? Because somewhere along the way, we decided that instead of theologians, we wanted entertainers. Then instead of scholarship, we wanted entrepreneurship. And instead of theological depth, we wanted a show. And now we have three generations, some would say four, I think three safe enough, three generations of people talking about a God that they don't even know. Their concept of God is absolutely foreign to script. How do you know? I've been a pastor long enough to know the things I hear people say about God, and I mean people that have quote-unquote been saved for years, and I think, oh, my gosh, where did you get that from? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, we need to get in our Bibles if nothing else, if you, don't, if you don't listen to these theological discourses, if you don't even, if you're not going to do anything else, please read your Bible and think. Assessing the attributes of the Almighty, how great is our God. He's great. We dealt with one of these attributes today is the saity. And as we go through these attributes, they'll be delineated, then they'll be defined, and then finally they'll be defended from Scripture. And so we dealt with the saity this time, and we'll see what's next on the list. God bless you. Keep studying.